I'm here with Brian Forrester and uh, Andrew Fink. What's what's like the latest thing that's been going on with the skulls, like the elongated skulls? We've had nothing for two years because of COVID. Everything's been shut down. Uh, my major connection to getting samples died of COVID about a month ago. Uh, all the museums have been closed. Most of Peru's been shut down for quite a long time. So things are only slowly getting to normal now. But um, yeah, so there, there's nothing recent, but I can give, give you a summary of, of what, uh, what we did find. Yeah, so we, we tested in total 20 skulls um, from the Paracas culture, all dating from between 24, 2500 years old to about 2000 years old. And of the 20, only three of them, in terms of their uh, maternal haplogroup, which is the mother's DNA, showed to be South American. Only three. Okay. Three. Yeah. Uh, two of them turned out to be unknown, which, uh, which means that uh, the DNA didn't match anything in the global database of, of uh, Homo sapiens sapiens. That's interesting. And the other ones are, are most closely related to DNA of elongated skulls found around the Black Sea area. Right, right. Have you found any um, recent ones in um, back catalogs or in storage that have made it um, to light recently that have added to the, to the museums that you have and that you uh, supported? Well, about two and a half years ago, we had uh, two of them uh, we took like a hundred samples from the two of them under very sterile conditions in a <clears throat> in a dentist laboratory in Lima, um, done by a forensic dentist. So you know everything was completely sterile. Everyone, of course, was wearing um, you know gear to avoid any possibility of contamination, etc. And those samples were taken to one laboratory in Can in Canada. And another laboratory in uh, Los Angeles, uh, actually at UCLA. Okay. And and the results actually they were able to extract for the first time they were able to extract nuclear DNA, which is paternal, and uh, neither neither of those two skulls matched anything known, which you know was very curious. So nothing from South America, nothing from the Black Sea area, nothing you know. Sim simply it said. I, unknown unable to match with anything that, that we have so That's i always hear about the skulls but you never hear about like the skeletal remains like did, did like are there any examples of the full skeleton with this the head attached not with the head attached no so then like do Actually, we know isn't... if they were bigger than normal people or not i mean like their heads certainly is bigger yeah we've been able to um analyze you analyze the femur bone uh, for its length, and then you can extrapolate from that. And it turns out that they were between five foot eight and six feet two, which is very tall for an indigenous Peruvian person, because even modern day Peruvian people average about five foot four or five foot six. Sure. So they would have been rel like relative giants, at least the original population would have been, which mm -hmm. is, you know, that's quite curious. Yeah. Okay, so you do have femur bones like next to the. Or, I mean, you've you've found bones enough to be able to deter determine height with, with the skulls. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And that, that echoes of stories in North America that uh, Hugh Newman and Jim Vieira are looking at, 
with uh, you know some of those giant remains. And, you know, makes you wonder how connected those two are. You know, I think some of those they said the the jaw bones on some of those to fit around yeah. of a normal skull you could put over your your head so we're talking pretty big skulls and none of those remains are available for study but mm -hmm. yeah, pretty big femurs elongated skulls you know could be more to this other genetic group and multiple genetic groupings and i also thought it was interesting with the elongated skulls how they don't have as many teeth right like they don't have as many molars that you've found uh no they have the normal they have the normal number of teeth. They don't have uh, they don't have canine teeth though. Uh, so un unlike us, they, they don't have canines. They're they're simply the same as the other two, two teeth in the row. Ah, so would that suggest maybe they didn't eat as much meat or any meat? Uh, it that could be like the molars appear to be normal. So you know that the molars are good for grinding grain and stuff. But if you don't have canines, then that could suggest that they were more had more of a plant-based diet than uh, than meat. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Well, I've always thought, you know, maybe there is a other cross-cultural connection with these elongated skulls beyond the Black Sea region, maybe into like India. And just that diet, that makes me think of maybe the, the Indian you know, vegetarian diets that go along with their religions. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about maybe some of the architecture because that's basically what I do on my channels. I've kind of jumped off of what you've done with all of your photo taking and sightseeing. And I put together a, a research, running research catalog on all the little hallmarks of all architecture. And I'm, mm -hmm. seeing, I'm seeing it in Peru, like you, I'm seeing it in Egypt. And surprisingly, I found a ton of it in, in uh, India. Oh yeah. So yeah, I'm, one of those places that we can't really go freely all over and it, you know, there's so many sites that are still like in, in a ruinous state that aren't uh, observed, but mm -hmm. there are so many temples in India that, that could potentially show us some connections to this global culture. So, oh, that's true. Yeah. Well, if, if you know the, the YouTube channel, Praveen Mohan, he's been, he's, he still finds places to go to, which is amazing because you, you don't find that in Egypt or, or Peru, like all of the, all of the sites, sites have been cataloged there's nothing new to be found in peru but in india you know india is so, so intense in terms of the number of of temples and he's done a, a fabulous job over the course of years of cataloging you know that's all of that stuff and yeah. and sri lanka of course he's been to as oh, well agree there's more in, in sri lanka as well and the rama oh, bridge, yeah. rama bridge itself is a very questionable piece of you know architecture so well mm -hmm. even when i went to india i went to mahabalipuram and it was like um i mean basically the entire town there there's a designated place where there's megaliths but there's like if you go to the beach there's tons that are just being taken by the sea on and off like there's there's temples all right there's no signs on anything there's no designation of um you know, there's there's no UNESCO basically over there. Like they don't really tell you what you're what you're looking at or what you're seeing or that this is special or not. But you can see mm -hmm. littered megalithic stones and structures all over the entire town. So it's it's uh, I think there's just there was a lot more there than than we know. Mm -hmm. Um. So 
so like okay what we we wanted to know what your thoughts on particularly like the nubs were or i've heard you call them knobs but either way either way it works and because we, yeah, we I guess people use either term mm -hmm. okay so what what's what's your best guess at um i guess well it, it doesn't even really matter what the function is but i find it curious that they're they're found all over they're they're found all over the world yeah, that's true. So found in Turkey, they found in India, they found in Peru, they found in Bolivia, they found in Egypt, uh, Lebanon, and you know, on and on it goes. You know, there's so many different theories about what uh, what they were for. The standard explanation by archaeologists is that they were used for attaching a rope underneath to lift them up, and that doesn't work because actually, I watched part of, of one of your one of your videos uh, earlier today, Andrew, and you were making the same point. They're rarely at the balance point. Agreed. You know, they're usually off to the left or off to the right, or or they're too small. Oh, definitely. Or, or there's no um, indentation underneath for the rope to be able to, you know, hold on to be able to pull it up, etc. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. also the standard explanation as to why some of the biggest stones don't have them is that at sure. least in per in Peru, the archaeologists say, well, the Inca cut those off and polished them and didn't get around to cutting the rest off. It's like that's not a good explanation. No. Um, another idea is that they're, you know, if you want to get kind of wild, is that they were because the stone was uh, shaped while it was soft, as in uh, that they're extrusion points of mm -hmm. some kind, like you, you do with, with casting in plastic. Um, another theory is that they match alignments with the solstices and equinoxes, which is true because there's an expert in Cusco that I that I met and um, he, he showed me his booklet where he showed me some, some alignments, but it didn't take into, into account all of the, all the knobs, just a few of them. Yeah, so, I think I have that in your book, actually. I've got it bookmarked, but uh, there's, yeah, just potential, potential secondary functions after the fact that they might be uh, construction byproducts, like maybe softening the stone extrusion points or something like that, but after mm -hmm. that, they had a reason for being after that after that fact because they like you said they could have just taken them all off and made it a a nicer looking aesthetic surface but right. they seem to follow like rules all around the world as well in terms of where they're placed and mm -hmm. sometimes how many in the clusters and one of the phenomenon seems to be foundations so that tells me right away you know it's, it's a it's a good way to find the real mccoys of the ancient sites because if they have nubs along the foundations and megalithic polygonal stones mm -hmm. you know that it's connected to this building process and this ancient lost high technology yeah that's no that's a very good point and uh, you, you uh you know you find them on the megalithic works in in and around cusco you know which i th think we can safely say is pre-inca work because the scale the precision is very difficult to replicate today. Uh, so, and the Inca work is much, much uh, inferior to, to that kind of work, but you don't find the knobs or nubs on the Inca construction, just on the stuff that appears to be far, far older, made of much more uh, dense stone material like basalt. Uh, yeah, dense. Yeah, good point. Even though sometimes the blocks do get smaller, like inside the Cori Concha, you know, mm -hmm. some of those blocks still have nubs on them. So the smaller cellular work, you know, you can just tell by the joinery a lot, just the precision aspect of it is still the same, regardless of the scale. And if it has nubs on it, you know, that's kind of a good, 
good way to tell the real McCoys. It's always interesting that they're on yeah, um, a lot of the, the amphitheaters, like they're on the uh, in the seats in the in the uh, in like Turkey and Greece, like that. That's always yeah. weird to me. And same thing with on. Sometimes they're on top of columns, and then sometimes they're at the bottom of columns, which may. I I sort of have started thinking of them more as their amplification, like they had something to do with like a speaker system or <laughs> I don't know, like that's what I started thinking about them as. Um, yeah, but I, I, either I, way, I think says that in one of his books, I think in the Peruvian one, he says that you know maybe he not don't know for sure, but energy, you know maybe energy, you know into the structure or I think maybe energy onto this con construction some kind of divine energy is going on and, you know, transferring through the structures. And maybe after the fact they were energetic, you know, for a long time and these little nubs and like the, the Intiwatana, the hitching post of the sun, and there's mm -hmm. like the bedrock nub at Pizak, you know, these might've been focal points for some kind of energy in, in one direction or the other. Yeah, it could be. And it could be something as simple as solar like solar energy collection. But, um, energy. Yeah, yeah, could be. Well, yeah, and you brought up the Cori Kancha is, is a very, very profound building because it's, you know, the precision of, of its work is so precise and there are no gaps in the stone from the front to the back. Mm -hmm. So it appears that the whole building acted as if it was like one piece of, like it was meant to vibrate or resonate as a single block of stone. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, it was for earthquake proofing, but earthquake proofing would be a side benefit from uh, uh, make, making something so profoundly uh, interlocking like that. So it's, it's yeah. one of the most amazing structures in the world, not just in Peru, but. Um, I agree that that's the, the way you say side benefit, because a lot of people will tell me, oh, well, the polygonal stones, that's for earthquake proof. But it's like, well, just saying earthquake proof doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, explain all the development process involved in coming up with the design that is perfect for earthquake proof. Like that's a long development process. So mm -hmm. when, we, when we see these sites kind of just fully formed in this perfected design, you know, that's that speaks of some some kind of lost knowledge. No, very much so. And another interesting point is with the Cori Cancha, every stone is a different shape and size. So they could, you know, maybe different by a centimeter in length or two centimeters. But that is a very odd way of building. Like that's not something the way we approach building something. You want to have uniformity. So that further complements or complicates that structure by itself. And that why would you make each one different? That makes it a hundred times more complicated than using, you know, a uniform shape and size. Sure, sure. Or even I think, like at Sexy Woman, how there's like, you know, like a paw or like a snake, like uh, there's like yeah. designs within right. the stones. Mm -hmm. um, that's super um, complicated to do and a lot of pre-thought about every single stone that's placed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's really neat about polygonal stonework is, you know, it only goes together one way. So if, if it falls apart, you know, if you had enough software or maybe just enough analytics on the stones, you could potentially jigsaw puzzle them back together if you had them all. Whereas in, in one of those bevel block structures or standard core structures or the cellular block structures, if those fall apart, they're like Legos. You can put those back and archeologists will probably get that wrong a lot of times. But with the polygonal nub architecture, you can almost, you know, like putting teeth back into sockets. You can you can find the, the, the original location. I think the, the gate of the sun 
uh, in Peru, where there's a few nubs on uh, one of the sheer walls. I think there was some nubs that uh, were on some blocks that fell down, but it looks like the restoration work found the original location for those blocks, put them back up, and they fit with you know the tight joinery. And it's like, ah, that might be a piece of the puzzle, the piece of the code, or the piece of the message, or whatever the nubs are. It's it's finding a piece of that message and putting it back. And yeah, yeah. One of my favorite examples of that is the Minkare pyramid casing stones. Yeah. And I'm sure, yeah, you've seen those. There, mm -hmm. there's it in that kind of scenario, it almost looks like a message or code or some kind of technical information is going on along those casing stones. No, that's another good point. And that's another theory that the knobs form some kind of um, yeah, like like code mm. uh, of some kind. And uh, we see multiple examples in especially in Cusco, where you can tell that the Inca were trying to put some of these structures back together. Mm -hmm. And they just, and they simply couldn't, you know, they didn't bother trying, I don't think, to see where they would go. They would just kind of shove it into place and then use little bits of stone in order to fill the gaps because it's, it was so complicated that trying to replicate, you know, would take 21st century, um, you know, computer technology to, you know, to be able to, uh, map and then rebuild something like that. So that's a very good point. Exactly, like they do with like the the Parthenon and uh, Greek sites and Turkish sites, and you know even even like you said with Turkey, Turkey has some really interesting polygonal stuff and standard coarse masonry. One of my favorite ones is a site called Katiorin, and it has some amazing polygonal walls that you know other than being more of a, a smooth surface instead of the puffy surface like you see in Peru that mm -hmm. it's, it's still very polygonal, very complex, but has a uh, standard course corners. So it's like they could morph their technique, almost like they do in Peru and at the Cori Concha and Sacsayhuaman, they could, they could morph their technique from polygonal to more of a standard cellular course, like on the fly, it seems. Okay, mm. so besides nubs and like the polygonal thing, I mean, there, there are other hallmarks that are showing that there was like essentially cross globalization before they're saying, or, you know, there, there was a globalized civilization before they're telling us there was. So, okay. I mean, I, how do you, how do you conflate or not? I don't know what the word is, but how do you justify the timelines not matching or, you know, like the, you know, this being, uh, the Peru stuff supposedly being a thousand or 2000 years ago, or, you know, and Gobekli Tepe being, 11,000 year, like, years ago, like how do, with all these things that they do match, they do look like they were using similar building techniques. W what do you think about the whole timeline thingy? Well, that's a very complex question, but Gobekli Tepe is a good, is a good case in point because they have through radiocarbon testing, they have proven that it's at least 11,000 years old, but the construction technique is incredibly sloppy. I've, I've been there and you know, it was good for half an hour. And that was about it. Because I don't see any great mystery. You know, people go, oh, my God, I have to see Gobekli Tepe. Well, it's worth seeing. But for me, it's right. one of those places that's good to see once be because how it was built and the material it was made from isn't very complex. It's it's limestone. It's, it's local. It wasn't moved over, you know, several miles to put into place. Uh, but then, you know, the, the timeline that we've been told of Egypt and uh, Peru just don't make sense because why, you know, again, the standard story of Egypt, the greatest structures were the first ones built, like the great pyramids were built first, 
and then the quality of workmanship of downhill that's that's counter to you know basic logic and then in, in peru they say that the inca did this all with you know copper chisels 500 to 1000 years ago which is impossible because you can't shape the stone with those tools so we have to look at a much longer timeline it it appeared you know we know that there was this time period uh, period called the younger dryas about 13,000 to 12,000 years ago where there were cataclysmic events that uh, you know were felt all over the world maybe even changed the axis of, of the planet and right. that cre that created incredible destruction so that's why a lot of us are thinking that these megalithic works are are pre-cataclysmic so they're older than 12,000 you know, based on the science of, of what the Younger Dryas um, discoveries have, have shown us. And that makes me wonder with the, uh, if, like you say, with a, a shifted tilt or a shifted spin, you know, could the conditions on Earth have been different to enable some of this architecture? Like uh, some of the stuff I see in China, like Yangshan Quarry, China, that place is just fascinating. I mean, those, those stones are enormous. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the monoliths has nubs on it. And one of the other ones by itself in the quarry is the, one of the biggest, what appears to be quarried stones ever. And it's, mm -hmm. and the, what's next to it is a big open void of quarry space where there must've been more of those at one time and now they're not there. So we're, I'm just seeing a ton of this quarry evidence. And we can talk about uh, Aswan quarry as well. A lot, mm -hmm. of, a lot of material just missing. And then of course, those objects themselves, the unfinished obelisk, the stone of the pregnant woman, I mean, mm -hmm. even, even the Moai on Easter Island, some of these things are just, right. they're amazingly enormous. So something in the conditions of us or the environment or both had to be different to even enable some of this stuff to be possible. No, again, that's a great point um, about that. And the problem with all of these countries is that the, um, the governments refuse to accept that there was a culture older than them. So the Chinese are very hesitant to, you know, to even accept the suggestion that there was someone more profound than, you know, the Han Chinese people. The Egyptians refused to talk about anything before the first dynasty. The, you know, the in Peru and Bolivia, they refused to talk about anything older than Tiwanaku in Bolivia. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the biggest problem we have is that the academics will not budge they will not look at the evidence and it's staring them in the face that's the frustration is it's staring them in the face Agreed. you know yeah the, the stuff becomes easier and easier to look at the more you know the more you look at it and for them still to be so stubborn um you know is why i put my stuff on youtube i don't bother trying to discuss it with academics anymore because they they simply will not listen I get that. Yeah, I've, we've been trying on Twitter lately, and it's kind of a futile effort because you get maybe one out of a hundred interested minds that will, you know, follow these concepts and, and do their own research and do the homework. And then most of the others are just arguing petty points and mainstream uh, propaganda that they just they don't even know that well themselves. And mm -hmm. you just, you get you get a lot of uh, um, unnecessary static trying to argue, but you know, we think we have made some progress lately, you know, off the backs of your work and other researchers' work with our free catalog. We're kind of just throwing that out there. We've kind of, yeah, slowed down on arguing the points and we just want to show the evidence and, you know, maybe organize it to where people can 
understand them as connected hallmarks a little bit more. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the, another great one that you've pointed out and your wife has pointed out are these small filler stones, like at Cor the Cori Concha, that tiny little filler stone that is, right. you know, it's very impressive. It's not there for any other reason than it's impressive and a signifier. And then mm -hmm. you have it uh, the, on an Ahu at Easter Island, the, ex the exact same uh, signature, if you want to call it, of a corner filler stone. And, mm -hmm. and Silustani, Peru. I mean, if you put the one at Silustani, Peru next to the one at Easter Island, those look identical, like the exact same. The polygonal construction of the wall and the placement of the filler stone on the corner. And then we mm -hmm. just went around the world with these corner filler stones. You find them in Persepolis. You find them in India. You find them in Egypt. I mean, it's another, it's another signifier that goes along with all this megalithic architecture. Right. So are the pinch holes, which are my favorite. Um... Yeah, that's like the newest phenomenon we've kind of found. And it's one of those, Brian, like you say with the nubs, it's, you, it has a really banal mainstream excuse, which is it was for tying up animals for sacrifice, or it was for hanging tapestries and banners and awnings and canopies and things like that. But you start looking at these little loopholes or anchor holes or pinch holes, whatever you'd like to call them. You start, look, you start looking into these and these, first of all, the placements don't make sense. And then some of them look more advanced than others. You right. see them um, like at uh, Tiwanaku, uh, you see some really advanced like precision corners, filler or corner pinches around um, some of the precision blocks there. But then you'll also see them in bedrock. Uh, Cappadocia, I've seen them. Baalbek, I've seen them. I just uh, found some in Palenque. Yeah, that's right. You found them on the step. And that's something you see uh, in several places, including inside the step pyramid of Egypt. Uh, oh. Jimmy, Jimmy from Bright Insight, went in, when he went in, the lighting was good, his camera was good, and he caught the edge of the top step going in, and it has one of these corner pinch holes in it. And I believe uh, near Pizoc, there's some doorways that have them. And then oh, yeah. my favorite doorway, uh, it's one of the most complicated doorways I've ever seen at the Cori Concha. We just refer to it as the special door or the door, but it's that door with, uh, it's like a false door, but it's kind of broken and it has all the little channels and holes around the perimeter on both sides. Mm -hmm. and, and what we think those might be the same phenomenon, these pinch holes. There's a temple in Turkey, uh, Adada, and it's an amazing temple in its own right. It has nubs on one side, blocks that look like softened or puffy like the Macaure, uh funerary avenue and then ar around its doorway again just like in Peru it has these little pinch holes and I believe I saw on one of your videos Brian when you went to Cappadocia there was one doorway in the bedrock that had these weird pinch holes around the top of it so I don't know what they are the function I think it might relate to high tech or may maybe uh, an electrical or energy transfer again or grounding for energy but it, it, it rings true with all the nub sites and the filler stones and the megalithic architecture, the polygonal stonework. All these mm -hmm. sites are, are rhyming in a sense. And then there's my other, my other, my second favorite, no, third favorite is scrape marks. I remember. Uh, like, uh, yeah. Scoop marks and scrape marks. I mean, we have like a whole folder of just odd processing marks. We don't really know, you know, how, you know, what to, everyone has, has a different name for them. Sometimes you say, you know, this one looks like a spoon. Right. scrape or a, you know a divot or sometimes we'll say oh well that looks like a a nub but it's in reverse like a inverted nub 
we've mm -hmm. heard for like uh, at the Serapium, they're, they're referred to as, you know, areas where they've scooped out the, the cracks or the imperfections in the stone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that could be, there could be something to that with all of them around the world. But then you see them in, most curiously, you see them uh, in the temples in Egypt, all along the columns, and sometimes all along the, the lower foundations of the temples. And the excuse for those, the mainstream excuse, is that either uh, you had you know, pilgrims or, you know, or knives yeah, you, or whatever. You either have the pilgrims taking it for tinct tinctures, for drinks, uh, for you know, religious purposes, healing purposes, mm -hmm. or you would have the soldiers and, and invading forces, you know, disrespectfully scraping their swords and knives and implements on the sides of the temples. And both in both scenarios, I just don't see. I mean, it's a lot of effort. Some of the so some of the orientations don't really, they're not very uh, conducive to sharpening something. And then you see these same marks in the quarries. Yeah, so, well, they're pervasive everywhere. So it's... Yeah, so it's, I mean, were these pilgrims going out to the quarries to get these? Or were the soldiers going out there to sharpen their implements? I mean, I, 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 and some of these marks look a lot like the ones you've shown at Petra in Jordan. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, a lot of these little echoes, they're, they're rhyming all around the world. Okay, so hmm. I don't know what to call these stones, but the ones that are like the ones I've Andrew, the ones I've recently been calling what the fuck boulders. Um, yeah, just like Brian knows that you would in Peru, they're just the sacred bedrock formations, like, like in Machu Picchu or uh, um, Napahuaca, right? There's mm -hmm. there's that one, or or you know some of them you're not sure if they're still connected to the ground or if they're they're loose boulders. Um, but, what uh, do you what do you what do you think about that element? That's because there there seems yeah. to be some of those in like what's that place called Bonobo, Italy, or uh, Bomarzo Bamarz has Bamarzo, some of that. Italy has a bunch of them. Like there's all they're all over India. They're they're just like the weird boulder that has like it, you know it looks like a Tetris game was played on it. Um, well, again, the standard idea from archaeologists that those were either areas where uh, the younger apprentices would go to test their skills mm -hmm. um, or the other idea is, is that that's where stone was extracted from but the shapes are never again it's never a common shape that's removed like you have these stair these so-called staircases going up but mm -hmm. you don't find the stone has been put into place anywhere nearby so um, I think they based on the weathering patterns too they're probably the some of the oldest construction work, the, the bedrock shaping stuff, but that's a complete, you know, that's a complete mystery. Mm -hmm. uh, luckily, I've had geologists with me and looking at the surfaces. And uh, again, standard academics say that that's during Inca times. And so I've asked them, would this be hundreds of years or thousands? And they've all said thousands upon thousands of years of weathering would cause that kind of effect on, on what originally would have been probably quite a precise surface so again it doesn't fit the standard timeline of, of what the academics are, are talking about i could see that yeah some of the interiors of the temples in peru they still remain very precise and, and they've been shielded from some of the weathering and you, right. can, you can get that impression on some of these with lazy stones and like the saihuite blocks these just weird boulders yeah. have cuts in them and I mean, some some spots like uh, Kilo Rumiak, that that bedrock carving, that's in pretty good shape. And some of these other spots, they are they've retained some some precision. You can tell that they 
that maybe like originally like a, a Ollante Tambo, I believe in the bedrock, there's that um, cross hatching pattern, you know, and, and, oh, yeah. and I think it's Saxe there might be more of it, but it's like, that was done very precise, you know, some kind of high loss technology did that. Sure. And while I can see the whole, like, it could be apprentice this or that, but there's still some sort of like, um, there's they're, like, they're, they're close enough where like in a connoisseur eye, you can kind of go like they're related, um, or, or, or there's, there's elements about them enough that you, you kind of lump them with similarities of other ones. So that's always very, like, I just don't know where to place those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're just like they, they do seem primordial and like fundamental and primary. And then like uh, Ben at Uncharted X has mentioned that it looks like some of the cellular block work might have venerated or protected some of that weird bedrock work. Uh -huh. uh, like Tambo Mache has a really interesting kind of melted bedrock element, but it looks like it's been shored up or venerated or protected by the block work. So, uh -huh. I mean, yeah, there, there could be like you got to stretch that timeline out. There could be generations of this, of this presence uh, and, and this process, this project, and uh, you know, coming back around after maybe generations of neglect and abandonment right. too. Especially with with the the connections with Turkey. I mean, I, it really makes you wonder with the travel possibilities. You know, could they have just had Peru as like a secret spot that they came to? And then maybe they would go back into the old world and mingle with the rest of civilization. And then maybe every few generations, they would return to their secret homeland and maybe restore the cities a few more times. And it seems like Machu Picchu and some of these other sites have, you know, an intermediate stage where it's like you say, Brian, it's, it's not quite the megalithic work, but I think it's, it's a little bit better than Inca, Inca work. It's like the blocks get smaller, the precision starts to go away, but you know, they still spent a lot of time sculpting these blocks and, and maybe they had a remnant of the of the process or the technology left, and it was just fading and dwindling. Well, the Inca did, of course, you know, they did have master, you know, for what tools they had to work with, they did have master masons who were were quite good at, at working with large blocks of stone and fitting them together quite well. Mm -hmm. But it's not the same as the older stuff, where you can see much, high, you know, much higher level of, of precision than that. You know, almost next well, basically next door to one another. Yeah. So, yeah, Machu Picchu is, uh, you know, it's a it's a curious case because somebody obviously chose that location and cut the top of the mountain off in order to to shape the city, mm -hmm. because all of the all of the mountains in that area are dome shapes. Mm -hmm. So somebody, you know, somebody had to come and almost, you know, this would be an ancient aliens episode, but. You know, shear the mountaintop off in order to be able to create flat, um, uh, flat surfaces to even start with, and then the core of Machu Picchu is clearly the oldest, and it is megalithic. And then all of the Inca work, which is ninety-five percent, was built around the discovery of this very, very ancient site. Right. Yeah, I think that that's a another echo around the world. As you see, the core of most, you know, yeah. ancient areas is a me megalithic core. So if you're hunting for the, that kind of architecture, go to the core of the city and find one of the oldest temples. And you know, you'll probably find nubs on it and the polygonal stonework and these other related hallmarks. And eventually you can, you almost get to just where you can see the architecture. It just, you, you know that style and, and more than likely you can almost predict 
the hallmarks are going to be there. All right. Well, that's a, no, that's a very good, I think in almost, if not every case, almost every case, it is the center or the core that is the megalithic part that was discovered and then built. Find that at Baalbek, at least mm. the Baalbek site itself, not the quarry, but mm. and uh, all over Peru and Bolivia. Mm. Um, and then you see, you know, in some cases, um, again, you see cataclysmic damage mainly on the western surfaces of the structures because all of the all of the ones in Peru have physical damage to them that was not done by an invading army or someone. It was some kind of incredible heat or force coming from the eastern side, striking the western surfaces. In some cases, at Silistani, you see um, vitrified, you know, melted stone mm -hmm. on, the, on the western surfaces. So clearly some intense heat struck locations like that. Um, also at Karnak in, in Egypt, you see that on the western surfaces, mm -hmm. where there's much more damage on the west side than there is on the east or south or north sides. Ah. So and I think I've also seen uh, Huaytara. Uh, uh, it's the um, it's the uh, church in Peru that's been converted by the Spanish, and I think mm -hmm. I've seen uh, some some discoloration and scorching of some kind. We call it we call them scorch marks whenever see, we see that kind of discoloration. And right. uh, yeah, I think it's really apparent there at Huaytara. Oh, it is. Of course, yeah. Tanis as well, right? Oh, ta yeah, Tanis or yeah. Elephantine Island or yeah, yeah Elephantine right. as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, what 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 do you think it like? What's your best guess? That, are you team multiple asteroid meteorite strikes, or are you team like coronal mass ejection? Mm. Or actually, all of the above. Mm. Uh, I think of you know. I think there was uh, you know. If you look at the work of um, oh, I've forgotten his name at the moment, um, but it's it seems like. Uh, the black hole in the center of our galaxy actually at certain periods of time actually can fill up and then e and then erupt and eject material and uh, and energy out from it which travels across the galactic plane mm -hmm. uh, oh yes dr rob robert shock is that robert no, shock no robert shock is the is the coronal um, plasma the ejection theory oh, okay what solar uh, this is so this uh, is from the galactic center. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think it's I th I think that is plausible, and I his name escapes me at, at the moment, but um, but uh, the theory is is that every thirteen thousand years there is an eruption from galactic center that sends out energy that travels ac across the galactic plane. It's possible that that ties in with Robert Schock's idea in that this energy could have right. gone through the sun. And uh, causing the ejection of plasma that would strike the surface, as well as collecting meteorites along or comets along its along its course course of movement, mm -hmm. causing them to maybe strike the Earth or that kind of thing. I could so, see that. I, I think in those kind of terms as well. Like it's it's something in the biblical realm. Like we're talking, you know, multiple forms of cataclysm. Mm -hmm. You know, to explain all the all the different. Uh, in eccentricities of of the uh, events that are recorded in in the ancient texts yeah so and and also over the course of a thousand years like it wasn't a, like a one day event ah good point right like yeah. different different patterns of activity that, that could have happened right yeah and i always wonder how how natural events could inspire some of these you know div divinity and and godly stories and mm -hmm. 
but then you also see this architecture that is in its own right, you know, divine and, and godly in its execution. So I think there's some kind of overlap between the natural cataclysm and then also some kind of advanced influence either here all the time or other world origins. I'm open mm -hmm. to really either at this point, because I mean, with the elongated skulls, that's just, that's something that kind of throws them a wrench and everything and is out of left field. And it's like, Oh, so there's a whole nother type of human that we could have responsible for a lot of this architecture that hasn't been recorded in any of the, the textbooks. And we haven't learned about it in school. So, mm -hmm. so I went to this place in Colombia called um, Musca. It was the Musca tribe or something. Can't remember if that was the name of the town, but it was like where the legend of um, the Cortez as like golden fountain or something came from. And anyway, their their little local museum had 700 of these skulls and they would not let you take your phone inside or they would not let you use your phone and they were very monitoring it and they didn't want any pictures of it online or blah, blah, blah. And, um, but they were all like, their skulls were all like, they were like a normal human size. They weren't elongated, but they had the, the like two bulbs, like two lumps on all oh, of them, wow. like in front of them. And it was very similar to- um, bilateral uh, Yeah, and when you took one of the elongated skulls and you, you put it in a certain angle, you know, the one that has the hump, like the- the Right, the, ah, the forehead. The back, the back has like the two little lumps on it. Uh -huh, well, right. that same sort of thing was all over those. And I mean, that's in Colombia. It's not that far from Peru, but wow. I I just wonder how much stuff there are. I mean, and I I was like, this is amazing. You should tell everybody. And they were like, tell nobody. <laughs> Oops. But I mean, you know, it's just like one of those things where I wonder how much we don't even still know about, like within uh, skeletal remains of old stuff. Well, or or are not allowed to to see. Like there was a. There was a Canadian filmmaker who went to Peru in the 1990s because Peru was going through this Maoist rebellion of um, terrorists. And so in order to uh, restore faith in tourism, uh, this Canadian filmmaker was brought there in order to make films for the government about how wonderful Peru is and, you know, and all the, all the beautiful stuff. And so the president met up with him and said, do you have any uh, you know, we're so thankful for this work you're doing. Do you have any requests that I can help you with? And he knew about the elongated skulls. And he said, I'd like to see what you have in the, like in the warehouse with the elongated skulls. And he supposedly was given access. I've never been given access, but he was given access and he went inside and he said there were some that were at least twice the size of a normal human skull, like not 20 or 30%, but like this big. Wow. And, uh, and the president said, would you like to take one home? And he, uh, filmmaker said, well, I think that's illegal, but could you have a, a copy of one made for me? And he's got it in his house in Ontario, and it is twice the size of a normal human being. So it's what they're hiding away from the public, like in Colombia, as you were saying, and in Egypt, et cetera, that's the most curious thing, you know, have to hope that they'll start opening the stuff up to the general public in the future. But uh, yeah, it's the it's the unknown, the unaccessible stuff that um, you know I want access to. Agreed. Yeah. yeah, and other cultures too. I think there's like some gold wizards caps 
um, and they're, they're really long, you know, almost like just a metal uh, stereotypical wizard's hat. And you think, well, long hat for a long head. And mm -hmm. then you see some of that in India as well. Some of their gods and portrayals of gods have very tall hats and uh, embellished hats. Well, all of them, like the Pope's hat. Here's a beer, Glenn. Pope wear a funny hat. Yeah, Glenn, I guess it is kind of funny. Yeah, the Pope. Yeah, yeah right. The, the Pope's mm -hmm. hat. You, you see that if you go into the Vatican uh, Museum, you, you know, you see the hats, you see uh, the sculptures done where the heads are like very, very big, mm -hmm. much bigger than normal. Mm -hmm. And you'd think, well, is it hiding a head that's the same size? Yes, exactly. And mm -hmm. so the, the Phrygian stuff, the Phrygian stuff, they have the, the caps that kind of flop over the front. And it's like, uh, maybe are they carrying over somehow? Are they the regular skull people still wearing the, the clothing of the uh, elongated skull people or something? And even ancient Egyptians, like crowns were very, you know. Right, exactly. But, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, uh, it's where I get a little bit conspiratorial, but I don't think that you build sex a woman and then you just go, ah, and you die from a cataclysm. I think these people like are in breakaway civilizations. I think they live under the ground or in oceans or in Antarctica or somewhere. They're already here. I think that whoever built the megaliths is also the UFO people. <laughs> that's my, that's just, I know that that's complete, just like, theory crazy but i i just i don't know i just i, I don't feel like um i don't feel like they're completely gone mm. and yeah i don't know why i feel that way but i have I, i've always felt like that i'm like yeah something of the something of all this doesn't add up mm -hmm. what's your what's your goals brian like what are you what are you trying to do going forward researching and stuff what's your aim uh, i i wouldn't say i necessarily have an aim um the good thing about Egypt is that more stuff is opening up to, you know, stuff that was inaccessible is becoming accessible. Mm -hmm. So that's good. Like this, uh, you know, I've been under the step pyramid at Saqqara twice now, and mm -hmm. there is a, a central shaft that goes pretty far down. Mm -hmm. And then if they you access you the, yeah, yeah, they do. They, they do now. Mm -hmm. And then now you can access the north side, which takes you down deeper and Ban of Uncharted Dex was in there. He made a couple of films about that. And he, you know, right. he, there were like six miles of tunnels underneath the Step Pyramid. So obviously the Step Pyramid was built on top of something super that they found was super sacred. Sure. And so that's, that's that, that giant box, that multi-megalith box down there, you know, right. whatever that was, I think that was obviously part of it. And I think there's another Southern Pyramid that has another version of that, maybe a smaller, slightly smaller version, but it's like uh, Lincoln logs with these giant ashlar blocks, and they they built some kind of, I guess you could call it a a, a coffer or a chain, you know, a box. Of course, mm -hmm. we have we have one piece boxes all over Egypt, and that was one thing I was going to bring up to you, Brian. Is do you do you see any kind of reasoning for there to be a lack of boxes, say in Peru? We have megalithic boxes you know, that follow all the other architecture all over the world, but we don't have the big, you know, sarcophagi in Peru as much, I mean, almost at all. European I mean, boxes or kind of thing. We, we have Bacal's sarcophagus lid, and yeah, that's impressive, but 
we don't have the number of, of, of burial chambers, coffers, whatever you want to call them. We don't have nearly as many in Peru as we would anywhere else. No, but you do in Turkey. If you go to the Central sure. Museum in um, Istanbul, like the, the museum there, they've got these right. massive things made out of stone called rhyolite that I think came from Egypt. And they're, you know, 100 tons in size. Of course, again, they say, well, this was from, you know, the fifth century BC made for so-and-so. It's like, no, you know, this stuff was recycled. It's all recycled. Mm -hmm. there, there are columns inside the Vatican Library that um, were brought from Egypt, obviously, because they're single piece. Sure. Uh, also the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, there are these giant rhyolite columns made of one piece that clearly were brought in from Egypt as well. So you have all this recycling stuff that went on. Sure, uh, sure. In different places. But no, that's a very good point. In Peru, you simply have these, you know, these megalithic walls and stuff like that, but you don't have anything made of stone of a scale like the Serapian boxes or, or anything like that. No. And, and also columns. That's another thing you don't see too much of is, like you say, the single piece columns. The only kind of uh, advanced looking columns I've seen in Peru is at like Chavin de Hontar has, a, right. has small short ones and they, they have some interesting in, uh, inscriptions on them and everything. But I, and then there's I think there's the, the thousand pillar hall. I think it's in Mexico. Is it Tulum or somewhere? Um, but you, you have you have, you know, uh, an echo of it, but not nearly the extent as anywhere else in the world. You know, everywhere else in the world, you have lots of column drum segments and you know, single piece columns and all this. But especially in India, you have those impressive lathe turned columns. Oh, yeah. Them. Oh, but, yeah. But not too much column work in Peru. So no, that's that's a good point. Just a, just an interesting lack of, of, a, of an echo, whereas other places it, it seems to, to echo in almost every other way. So mm -hmm. maybe maybe one of the ways that Peru might be special or uh, more primary or, or, you know, primordial. Who knows? Yeah, well, I, you know, it's still my belief that whoever did the work in Peru was not the same that were in Egypt because the approach is very different. Egypt is very logical and linear. Mm -hmm. Peru is very, Peru's very playful. Sure. So, yeah. Left brain yeah. versus right brain. And then I think whoever built Kumapunku and Tiwanaku was a separate mm. culture as well. <clears throat> and then whoever was on Easter Island as well with the giant Moai, you know, you have two sizes of Moai. You've got the ones up to 30 feet tall, then you have ones that are about sure. six feet tall. So the, the short ones were clearly made by the Easter Islanders, but they discovered Easter Island with the giant Moai there and tried to, you know, it's always a game of replication or attempted yeah, replication. Yeah, I, I actually, we were talking about that with some of our group the other day, and I thought, that's almost like a reason for the sites to exist, you know, beyond any other purpose they had. It's just, it's a, it's an ideal for all the uh, local population to, to strive for, you know, just by putting the ruined structure back together, you're learning about how to, you know, build these structures and then you copy them and try to, you know, do your best to get the quality as, as good as they did. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's like just by them existing and you, you growing up around these structures, it's almost like it, it furthers evolution and of civilization, you know, in a passive way, passive, positive way. Mm -hmm. So. Well, Brian, I know uh, we've got to be conscious of your time. It's almost up. Um, is there, uh, is there anything you have coming up, like some tours there, that, that are going to be popping off? Like your new, your new book, anything you need to. Um, yeah, we've got a tour next month in Peru. 
which is good. Um, Bolivia has become problem problematic, especially mm -hmm. for Americans. They're, they've installed a, a visa process that mm -hmm. uh, is very complicated and very expensive. So I don't know when I'll be going to um, back to Bolivia again with a group. And then in November, we have another tour in Peru, possibly Bolivia, which is already sold out, which is good. And then in April of next year, I'm going back to Egypt again for the ninth time. So I'll get to access the a, a few sites I haven't been able to see before. The megalithic ones that have opened up in the last year. They've also will have the new giant largest museum in the world open right. um, in Egypt, the, the GEM. So mm -hmm. that'll be that'll be good. And you know, I'll, I'll continue going to Egypt probably once a year if there's something that I get to see that I haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. um, but aside from that, I'd like to go to Egypt once at some point. But again, you know, it's not that COVID is a problem anymore. And I, I think you're allowed to talk about it on, on YouTube now. But it's yeah. not that it's a problem. It's the fear that people still have that it's a problem. Uh, a friend of mine has a tour supposed to be starting tomorrow in Egypt. And he's only got eight people, mm. you know, mm. to be on his tour. And he's got, he's got four other guest hosts that are on it. So, mm. you know. Well, then there's also like, you know, BS like testing that if you don't get that right or you could get the whole oh, thing. Oh, I know. Or, you know, there's, yeah, there's all like, that. Yeah. I think yeah. at least, well, Peru's almost back to normal now. Not quite, but almost. But yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's foreigners' fear of, of, of traveling in general that is still causing, like, still causing a lot of problems all, all over the planet. So I'm hoping within a year, all of this will be gone. And that'll be the end of it because we've had we've had two years of this now and it's enough. Yeah. Yeah. I just I just got back from Mexico and it was like just I felt like it was 2019 there and back. I mean, I had to take a COVID test to get back into the U.S., but they didn't even right. check. Like they didn't even no, they didn't. ask me to look at my stuff. And I was just like, you're telling me I had to like go through all that crap to get it. And then you're not even going to look at it, um, which is I mean, but yeah, they didn't even care. They were just like, hey, welcome home, go through. Well, yeah, no, there's a good, there's a map you can look at, at the site is called IATA.com, I think it is. And the, it's the world map and it shows you what countries are open. Okay. And Mexico, Mexico has been open since January 1st, I think. You, yeah. don't, you know, you don't need anything. But uh, I check that map once a day just to see what countries are, are opening up in order to look at the possibility of, of where to go. India, as I said, I'd like to go to, but yeah. That's at least a year or two away before that, you know, before that becomes, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I had a tour to Malta that got canceled and they're still like pretty closed. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. I have a friend who went there uh, about a month ago and she said Malta was kind of problematic. Yeah. So well, I don't know. I hope it all ends like really quickly too. So, yeah. yeah. And, and if, uh, if India does open up, I would definitely like to get on board one of those tours because there's just there's thousands of temples. And I heard uh, we follow a couple uh, Twitter accounts that are all about um, restoring and finding these temples in India. And I think a survey found like, another thousand just, you know, that, that are either under uh, Muslim occupation, that they've been uh, converted into mosques and other things or just lost to the jungle and the desert. So um, some some really good ones there that I'd like to see is Warangal. Uh, oh yeah, 
uh, Praveen has shown that one. And then probably the best one for nubs is the Brihadishwara temple, which is like the Tamil Nadu's greatest, oldest temple. And then one side of this is just completely covered in these nubs and the entrance has these nubs all around the archway. And just there must be something pivotal and crucial to the nub language or nub expression mm -hmm. there in India. And, and maybe it's in, in pockets in India, there might be some surviving mentions on these walls that you know correlates to the artwork to where we mm -hmm. can, you know, like like you do with the hieroglyphs, you, you could you could put together some more of the narrative of how the process was done and who was involved. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Brian. This was really great. Thank yes, you. Sure. Thank you very much. I hope to go on one of these tours soon. If, like you say, these uh, restrictions calm down, and uh, if you go back to Egypt, I can't wait to see more of like the Osiris shaft. Uh, you know, at the very bottom. I know it's full of water, but what an enigm enigmatic place that is with that box and those other tunnels that go off down there it just makes you wonder so anywhere oh, yeah. you can get in with special permissions you know anything yeah, exactly. with, you know anything we, we can do with patreon or whatever to help with that i'd love to see some more new stuff like you i'd i'd like to go to these places but if it's not to see new stuff i'm kind of i'm not as interested yeah no exactly i've been to egypt eight times and you know it's been great but unless there's more to look uh, you know it's kind of it starts to get i've been to machu picchu 90 times and it starts to get you know redundant after a while so i i restrict i restrict how much traveling i do not just because um, you know again waiting for things to open up more but mm -hmm. peru's you know peru's close to being normal now that's good uh, but not quite there yeah well i do appreciate the uh, tombs of the nobles footage you've gotten recently in egypt because at tombs of the nobles you see bedrock nubs Oh, yeah. So, so like in, in, in the bedrock, there you go. You can't really get much more foundational than that. So what a, what a great spot that is. Great. Great point. So, well, thank you guys. I appreciate it. So yeah, oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Ha, ha, ha.